I apologize for not having my webcam on. I would turn it on, but my webcam is not t- turning on for whatever reason. It did last time. I don't know why it's not this time. <laughs> That's all right. I I I I, uh, I, I see your um, profile picture. It's uh, it's lovely. So it was it was taken in Berlin last summer. <laughs> hmm. Back when we could travel. Back when we could travel. I miss uh. Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you based, by the way? I'm in Derry. I'm in Derry, Northern Ireland. So oh, you know, really? Okay. I've so never been. You know, I really want to go to Northern Ireland. I've been to you know Ireland, but <laughs> never not Northern, Northern Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> Basically, if you, if you want to know the experience, just watch Dairy Girls on something like Netflix or something. That's on my list. I really want to watch <laughs> that. It's, uh, yeah, uh, it's supposed to be good. But yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. People would usually to... say Game of Thrones. Watch Game of Thrones, then you'll see what it looks like. But I guess Dairy Girls, better. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to experience my hometown, that's probably the best way to well, <laughs> explore, experience it right now. <laughs> Ragnar Turnquest. What is your favorite game? My favorite game is Journey. got into playing games uh, back in the 80s when um, you either had uh, you know one of the many weird consoles uh, or you had a computer and I guess I, my first contact with games was probably arcades like a lot of people back then um, but I also remember us having one of those Atari Pong machines that you uh, connected to your telly with an aerial cable uh, and it had the paddles built in and you could basically just play variations of Pong-like games. So that was, I think, my first, our first gaming hardware in the house. But, you know, the serious part of, you know, really playing games that came through various computers uh, that my father bought, like a um, Sinclair ZX-1. That was our first computer. That probably betrays my age. Um, 
Um, we had an IBM PC as well, but it wasn't really the kind you could do much game playing on. And then we had a weird computer that was a Hong Kong knockoff of an American computer called TSR-80. And that was the computer that I started both sort of seriously playing games on and making games on. And that must have been back in 83, 82, 83. Um, So my sort of game playing uh, journey began at the same time as my game development journey because we didn't have a lot of games and my parents weren't willing to spend money on a lot of games. They wanted computers to be more tools than toys. So I basically decided I had to teach myself basic in order to to make games so I could play them. And that's what I did. I think I created probably close to, I don't know, 100 games in a, in a few years uh, uh, on that computer and then moved on to a Commodore 64 um, a couple of years later. And that's where my game development gave way to more game playing because on the Commodore 64 you could visit friends houses and you could bring some blank discs with you and then things would happen and you would go come home and suddenly you had a lot more games so at that point sort of the um the access uh to a, a vast library of games probably pushed my game development skills and abilities to the side um, but yeah, I mean, it goes back a long time. We also had a, a Nintendo system at that point, the NES. So I was lucky in, in being able to have access to all these things because my dad um, was an engineer and he found it interesting himself. And uh, and then, you know, being able to, to tinker with these things and see the, the inherent possibilities in them. Can you recall what sort of games you were playing at, those, at, at that time anyway? There were a lot of... You know, on the Commodore 64, there were a lot of platform puzzle games, action games. Uh, but the first games that really started to stick with me was um, adventure games on the Commodore 64. Um, I, I, you know, we got, I got one of those um, uh, disk drives that had the floppy disks and attached it and was able to then try my hand on some of the old Infocom text adventures. And they were complex for somebody like me, um, and also the language was difficult. Um, not the reading part, but to try to sort of figure out that part of it didn't make any easier for a Norwegian um, kid to uh, try to decipher those puzzles. But the idea of the adventure fascinated me, the, uh, the ability to step into a different world. And that was so much more evocative than, you know, the the basic action or arcade games um so on the commodore 64 i got access to a tool called quill it was like a text adventure creator um that allowed me to make my own adventure games so it's sort of the idea of an adventure of being able to to experience a story and to to interact with the story that was incredibly fascinating because i was um a storyteller i loved writing i loved drawing comic books i loved the idea of making films. I made super eight short films with my brother as um, the and the sole actor in them at that point. And games as sort of an, an, a, a storytelling medium. Uh, I saw the the possibility in those simple adventure games back then. So I played I played them all. I played everything that was available on the Commodore sixty four, and then later on the on the Amiga, the Commodore Amiga. 
um, before getting a, a PC myself in the in the early '90s, and and then playing games like Day of the Tentacle, uh, Gabriel Knight, the first one, uh, all the LucasArts adventure games, of course, and and really loving them, and 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 that's where I guess my love of adventures and interactive stories began. Playing those sorts of adventure games with the with you know such you know deep narrative for its time. Do you think that sort of had an influence on the games that you've made? No, that that sounds like a very obvious question and probably <laughs> a very obvious answer. No, nothing I've ever done influenced my creative works. It all comes out of nothing. No, of course, yeah. Um, longest journey was, um, you know, my 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 first um, sort of professional adventure game. Um, even though I had made various um, text adventures uh, for my own amusement earlier. But The Longest Journey was definitely heavily inspired by, by Gabriel Knight, by, by the LucasArts games, uh, by the intricate and interesting puzzles of Day of the Tentacle, but of course a different approach to it. I think definitely the first Gabriel Knight was one of those adventures that made me see the mature possibilities um, the fact that uh, it didn't have to have a uh, a cartoony art style, it, it could have a mature themes, it could be a, an adventure game for grown-ups. It wasn't the first to do that, but I think the first Gabriel Knight was uh, was special in that it, uh, it, it really had adult characters and, and mature themes uh, and presented, at least for the time, very well, very, not cinematically, but more sort of like a... Uh, a whole new approach to to adventure games and that was the sort of first game that you played that sort of had those sort of adult themes probably not i mean the uh, infocom games some of them had um complexities as well there was a game called the mind forever voyaging for example um oh we had sam barlow talking about that a few years ago yeah hmm but those games were maybe a little bit harder to approach and i played them when i was um a lot younger and I, when I played Gabriel Knight, I, you know, it's, I wasn't doing any game development myself at the time. I was sort of studying film and and uh, uh, really sort of angling to 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 work in the film industry at that point. But it it stuck out as as something very interesting and and the sort of, uh, I guess it reawakened the idea of of you know why film, why not games? You can do something like this. You can do something that is. Um, moving and mature and and uh and dark and interesting um uh, with games i guess in that i guess in that way it's it's probably a good thing that uh you had those sorts of games as your sort of first sort of mature influence in storytelling and games because at least then it wasn't metal gear solid 2 like it was for me at 11 years old <laughs> well the metal gear solid games are so interesting in terms of doing storytelling in a way that if you look at it from the perspective of um, a film or TV or, or any other medium, they can be quite terrible. Uh, but as mm. games, they are fantastic. And, and it's, it's hard to really understand how what makes games such a different medium for telling those kinds of stories and why does it work there? Uh, and I think those games are fascinating because... You know, translating the stories of those games into another medium is probably not a good, great idea. But as games, they're you know they, they they stand out. How do you how do you think games sort of handle that sort of juxtaposition in a way, like handling a narrative in terms of uh, 
Uh, let me try and rephrase that. Like, how, how, how do you think it handles that sort of narrative transition with, within games? It's something we're discussing almost on a daily basis because we're working on a game that's narrative driven and it's, 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 it's weird and different in many ways. And I think, I think the great thing about games is that it's still a medium that is in its infancy in a lot of ways, at least narrative games. I mean, narrative games have been around for a long time at this point. So I'm not saying that, um, that we're just getting started, but, but it's still, the technology advances so much compared to, to to film and TV, for example, which are oftentimes quite stagnant or, or static for a long time. So, so, so with games, it's sort of like a constant evolution, and 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 that means that new approaches are accepted and embraced, and storytellers are constantly able to do things that have not been done before. Um, and of course, I mean, you have two tracks. You have the games that try to be traditional storytelling in the AAA sense with cutscenes and fantastic visual effects and, and sort of using the, the filmic or cinematic language. Uh, and those are great. Those evolve uh, by themselves and they evolve uh, in tune with technology. But then you have the different track of, of sort of the, the more indie type games or games that try not to do uh, the cinematic storytelling that are trying to sort of invent new ways to tell the story, and that's I think where you where games are way ahead of of other media where you know there's there's not that much mainstream acceptance for for um experimental cinema for example i mean those it's it's hard to even to find that um but with games, there's so much experimentation going on. And that bleeds out into the more big budget games and AAA games. So and that's why I think Metal Gear is is interesting. It's 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 sort of experimental storytelling, but with a huge budget. And I think games handle it because game players are accepting and they are interested in trying new things and experiencing new things. I think people who play games are open-minded in that sense. Uh, and because it's married with gameplay, um, there's a possibility of doing more with narrative that might not work out. If the gameplay is solid, there's, you still have a good game. You might have a narrative that doesn't quite work, but it allows for, for progress and experimentation. And, and I see that happening so much. And it's, it makes games super interesting. Uh, it makes game development I think more interesting than working in traditional media, um, and it, it it you know it it creates beautiful failures and and the occasional successes uh, that that pushes the genre forward. And I don't know, it's it I could easily speak for hours about how I think narrative games are you know the place where storytelling is really evolving. Um, and I'm not going to do that here. But but yeah, it is it is it is super interesting, and it's something that as game developers we're constantly trying to tap into, see what other people are doing, see how games tell stories in ways that we haven't thought of before, and then you know, stealing everything we can and and trying to integrate it with our our own ideas. Um, it's funny that you should ask uh, mention um, those the, the two tracks of narrative, and I want to pick up on something that you said in relation to your own stuff. I mean, like, from what you're saying, like, that second track of what you said about experimentation in storytelling, 
Like, that feels like... It feels like that sort of describes Dustborn in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think that describes Dustborn, uh, the game we're working on right now. Uh, um, I think that in my own career, I've, I have probably leaned more towards tradition than experimentation. Um, I think the game Longest Journey was in many ways a very traditional adventure games, but perhaps with a story that was a bit untraditional and with uh, a lead character and characters in general that weren't typically seen in games but but in structure and form it was it was i wouldn't call safe but it was traditional and the same has has been the case with both the sequel dreamfall and even dreamfall chapters although we tried to do some new things there but things that are new to us not necessarily to the genre or to 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 other developers um the game that I worked on before um, Dreamfall Chapters called The Secret World, that was an MMO. And there you have I no idea we... how much I love The Secret World like <laughs> back in the day. It was so good. I enjoyed it. I, I'm very proud of that game. I think that, you know, it, uh, it was a commercial. It was not a success commercially. Let's just put it that way. Um, and it took a long time to make and it was very expensive um and it definitely led to you know funcom the developer um changing as a company but i think we did some super interesting things there and i think what we tried to do there is to sort of marry the personal narrative with the massively multiplayer uh genre that was doing something different that wasn't sort of just leaning on what was there before i mean true we did use cutscenes and and mission briefings from npcs and things like that but 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 trying to sort of thematically put that into an mmo i think that was that was untraditional but but you know i mean i we i haven't really sort of been a driver for experimental storytelling i think but with dustborn um i think we're doing at least we're trying to do something different. We're trying to to make the story part of every system of the game. We're trying to sort of make the idea of words having power being part of the combat system. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely trying to push some experimental stuff in there and to do a game that's definitely crazier and, and far out compared to, to all the stuff we've done. Yeah, you know, I was basically a kid, just um, uh, I just wanted to play games. So I said, okay, I'll just make my own. Um, but um, I mean, getting into the industry, uh, it's I, I, I'm definitely privileged in, in every single way there is to be privileged. Uh, you know, being Norwegian, being a white guy, being, you know, uh, born at the time I was born. Um, and, and I stumbled into game development in a way that... Uh, is almost embarrassing. Um, but, you know, I went to film school in, in the US, in New York City, and uh, my intention was to sort of return to that or to go into that professionally, to make to make films, to write screenplays, to, to direct, to, um, you know, go to, go to Hollywood, basically. Um, but then I found myself back in Norway and I stumbled across uh, um, a job ad in a paper newspaper, if you can believe it. Again, showing my age. Wow, um, <laughs> like that—that's that, proper old school. That's I cool. know. This was, in, this was in 1994. I had to basically um, leave uh, America, not because I did anything, but because my visa ran out, and I came back home, and I was like, okay, I need to do something at least to uh, to make money. Um, 
opened the newspaper, saw the job ad. There was a, I remember there was a picture of Mickey Mouse and it basically said, you want to work with uh, Disney and, uh, and, uh, and their properties, uh, you know, call this number. And that was Funcom back then, who was a developer for hire who did games with Disney and, and other properties and other companies. Um, so I applied for a position as a producer uh, and um, a week later, I found myself uh, in Hollywood in Universal Studios at the table uh, talking to the director and producer of the movie Casper, The Friendly Ghost, because Funcom had signed uh, a deal to make a game based on that movie. They had already locked down a timeline of nine months. I was basically a producer. I was put in an office back home uh, that basically had nothing except the manuscript of the movie and a timeline and a team that was waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. And that was how I landed in the game industry. Of course, it helped that I had both, you know, played a lot of games. I had made a ton of games myself. I was sort of a self-taught designer and that I had a, a film education and a background so I could sort of straddle the fence when it came to making a a game based on a on a movie um but yeah that was that's how I stumbled into it and then I, I was basically told okay just do what you need to do in order to have a game ready in in nine months um it took 18 months because game development and because that was crazy uh and because we were also making a game for the playstation one um and our instructions and manuals were all in japanese and nobody on the team spoke japanese um and we were making a game the game also for the 3do i don't even know if you've heard of that but that was a console in the in the mid 90s and the sega saturn um and nobody on the team had any game development experience. Nobody had any experience with these consoles. We had no idea how to do this. So it was a trial by fire to make this game with an American publisher um, uh, and to basically deal with both them and um, and the studio and the director and even the office of Steven Spielberg uh, that we never spoke to. Uh, we did get one fax at one point and yes this was back when communication was actually through faxing um even though we did have email but i guess in hollywood they didn't have email yet um but i was told at one point that a joke i'd written for for casper uh would not be appropriate and if steven spielberg heard about it he would be furious um so that was my only contact with steven spielberg on that on that game um but yeah, I mean, that's where I started. I was lucky. I started at the, at the top. Um, and and we made a game uh, in 18 months that ended up probably selling more than most of the games I've worked on. So uh, I really started at the top. It's been all, all downhill from there on. You could say you were falling upwards instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and then, obviously, from Funcom, then you went and uh, you made you uh, started up Red Fred's Games. I did. I was at Funcom for eighteen years. I loved it, uh, and Funcom was a place where they really embraced and let you basically do whatever you wanted to do. To be honest, I mean, in a good way. Um, I mean, nobody told me what we the longest journey needed to be. It was basically 
just make sure you you deliver a game and we had complete creative freedom um the same with the secret world to a certain degree i mean what we were doing was risky uh but we had the support of of the organization of management and be able to do that so it was i was privileged and extremely lucky to 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 work at funcom uh, but after 18 years um first off i mean you get a niche you want to move on secondly in the industry was really sort of firing on all cylinders back then uh, it seemed to be sort of a possibility to to actually go and create something new and i was tired of working with huge teams the team on the secret world was at least 200 250 people um development happening over three or four different offices across the world uh it felt like in order to do the things I really wanted to do, I had to do it somewhere else. So we started uh, Dreamful Chapter, no, um, Red Thread Games in 2012. And we were able to then, uh, let's say, borrow or, or, or license the, the, the property that I'd created, The Longest Journey and Dreamful. And, and basically, Funcom gave us uh, permission to make another game um, in that universe. And that was Dreamful Chapters. And we went on Kickstarter. We got some uh, grant money from the government because socialism, yes. Um, and that um, was um, that was uh, Creative Europe as well, wasn't it? If I remember right. No, that was yeah. Creative Europe has supported all of our games after Dreamfall Chapters, but oh, uh, okay. For Chapters, it was the Norwegian Film in, uh, Institute that was um, very generous with their grants. Uh, uh, and helped really helped the development of that game uh, because Dreamfall Chapters was entirely uh, funded through Kickstarter and grants and whatever money we got through, you know, selling Dreamfall Chapters and basically putting that back into subsequent episodes and and the eventual uh, remaster of the game. Um, so yeah, I mean that that was my my hope of leaving Funcom and and starting Red Red Games was to be able to sort of focus on single-player narrative games and to do it with a bunch of people I enjoyed working with and some of whom had lost their jobs at Funcom after uh, The Secret World finished. Um, and, you know, we I slipped right into that as well. I mean, it, 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 it worked out really well. Um, we've had our ups and downs, of course, in the, in the eight years that Red Thread has been around. Uh, we've had, you know, Work for Hire that's been cancelled. We've had our, uh, you know... Uh, scary times when uh, the the revenue does not match the um the uh, the expenditures um but we survived we've released you know dreamful chapters first five episodes of that and then a remaster and console versions we made uh Draugen and uh published that ourselves on on consoles as well and now we're working on dustborn
let's talk of your favorite game, Journey. And I am very excited personally uh, because it now means that my favorite game has finally covered my own actual top three episodes, <laughs> or top three games rather, in its own rather standalone episodes. Even if one of them did come from me <laughs> as a special. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to sort of fill in the 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 final game on that list. The final gap. The final until, gap. Until, uh, the final gap until someone actually does Zone of the Enders two, the second runner next, and then we go top four. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of, uh, we'll get into Journey properly in a second, but I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on what came before. Uh, journey from within that game company, especially sp- specifically, um, Flow and Flower. Like, what were your thoughts on them? I have played Flow, but I cannot remember any of it. I I can't even remember what it looked like. So I I don't think that game touched and affected me as much as as Flower and uh, and then of course Journey did. Um, when it came to Flower, I I don't know when I played it. I'd like to think I played it before Journey, but it might be a lie. But let's say I did. Um, and Flower, I it it stuck with me. And I've actually played that game through a couple of times. And, and just keep in mind, I never replay games. I mean, I never finish games. I play You're one a lot and of done. games. I've never had time to finish games. The game, games are too long and too big and too complicated. Uh, I love starting games. Um, but, I you know, the list of games I have completed is is embarrassingly short at least in in recent decades um but flower i did um it's short of course that helps it's a good thing uh it's also beautiful and i felt it was it was a good game it wasn't it's not on my sort of top 10 list or even top 20 list of games ever but it was a unique experience and it it was beautiful and i and i and i love beauty uh I love aesthetics. I love the combination of, of, of music and audio and animations and, and colors and, and, uh, and beautiful pictures. So, you know, in that sense, the game gripped me. Um, but I think both of those games sort of, they were, um, they were sort of uh, um, part of the journey to journey. If you... <laughs> um, and journey is sort of the culmination of that. It's a game that sort of stands on the shoulders and far above those other games, I feel. The road to Journey. Hmm. There's just so much to talk about Journey. Like, I, honestly, we could probably make a three-part special, many <laughs> series of, you know, Journey if we go six hours or so. Hmm. But, um, there's the, I, th- I think the first sort of point to sort of touch upon is just how beautiful I mean, like mm. it's it's very immediate. It, it grabs you in a way that's very, um, you know, not enticing, but it just grabs you in a very immediate way that makes you think, "Wow, wow!" You know, this is going to be special. Wow, mm. you know, this is going to be pretty incredible. And I got that feeling immediately. I'll admit, mm. but not in a million years did I think, "Yeah, this is going to be incredible." piss off Microsoft sorry I just got a notice from a thing um, but in terms of that sort of look to like yeah like I said it, it gives you that sort of grab in terms of you know this is going to be pretty special but not in a million years that I think holy shit this is going to be pretty <laughs> fucking special like this is 
incredible. No, I I actually I had to refresh my memory a bit. I I sat down and played it just before our call. Um, so I started it up on the on the PlayStation Four in the office and and yeah, it's a, it's it's a striking start with that that desert and sort of fading into that and this red figure sitting in the sand. And you know, I think it's it looks great now, but I mean, it came out eight years ago on the PlayStation. Yeah, eight 3, years ago, and it looked mm. so it. I mean, it 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 looks, of course, um, better in some ways now. But back then, it the the impression it made was was so much greater. Um, and I think maybe people are playing it now; they're gonna lose that a bit. Although there is a timelessness to the art. It's it's dark. It's clean. It's um, it's it stands out. It's it, the art direction is impeccable. So of course it's not driven. The, the 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 look of the game is not driven by technology. But but there was something starting up that game on the PlayStation Three back then. And and to be honest, there are parts of it that look better in the original PlayStation Three version. For example, the sand had a sort of a coarse look to it that is almost lost on the PlayStation Four with the fidelity you have there. And so yeah, it it was striking. Um, and then the music when that kicks in, I think I think. The music is not just half of that game experience. It's 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 two thirds of it. It's such a big part of it, and that score is still one of my favorite uh, game scores of all time. And I think, yeah, the combination of the the striking art and the technology uh, at display and the music made it a, a memorable experience from the moment you started it. Just so, just to touch upon those sorts of two thirds aspect that you mentioned um, in detail, then. Um, like obviously we mentioned the art, and that obviously is down to you know the direction of Matt Nava, who just recently put out the Pathless, the Giant Squid, Abzu as well, of course. Um, like if obviously there's a massive through line there between Journey, Abzu, and the Pathless in terms of sort of that direction. Admittedly, I, I'll, I'll admit up front now I've still yet to play the Pathless, even though it's sitting waiting to be played on my PlayStation Five. And because I am a massive sucker for anything Annapurna puts out, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess, yeah, uh, it, it defines in terms of journey, anyway. It defines a massive part of that game. It's really integral to it. Yeah, it is. Um, and not, you know, I mean, it's, it's you have the music, the, the score, which is of of course, uh, you know, it it it's it's beautiful and and and. I think very memorable to people, but you also have the the way the sounds work in that game when you sort of call out when you do sort of your little uh, shout, your um, little chirp, yeah, and and yeah, chirp, yeah, and that how that sort of in tune with the music and how all that sort of plays together into a into sort of a a symphony of of images and sound, if you will. Um, but everything in that game, I think that speaks to sort of how long they spent on it and how much they tended to that garden so to speak and 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 pulled out the stuff that was unnecessary how sort of focused it all this and and that's evident from the moment you started up where there's no main menu there's no sort of intro screen there's no press start to play i think it it really helped them to have uh to be a uh, game published by sony i think a lot of the stuff they did um, third-party developers uh, or sort of, you know, other companies would not have been allowed to do. They did things that, that sort of broke conventions and broke the rules. 
And that really helped them. But I think to Sony's credit, they were able to see that and basically say, look, we, we're going to let you do these things because, um, because we can see it, we can feel it. So I think, I mean, uh, Sony sort of uh, championing that game and, and helping it bring it to their platform, I, I think that's a part of it too. But yeah, I mean, you're right. The, it, there's so much memorable, being, memorable in terms of the aesthetics of that game and how they all pull together. Inter- uh, from your interpretation, how important was it for Journey to sort of have that creative freedom, like you say, that that game company sort of had? It? Like, uh, Obviously, it helps that they had the backing of Sony. They had the sort of incubation that they had with Sony Santa Monica. Um, but like, even then, like, how important was it just for Sony to give such a small team as much creative freedom as say you know the likes of you know their Triple H studios like like Naughty Dog like Sony Santa Monica like Sucker Punch etc. I mean it's incredibly important and that's not sort of um, minimizing the work of the development team uh, of course not it's 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 all their accomplishment but but the fact is if they had had a different publisher uh, maybe not a first party publisher. I'm sure that would have hurt the game. Um, they might not have been able to do all the things they wanted to do technically or design-wise. They might not have been given the time they were given because as far as I understood, they they went way beyond the original estimates. And again, game development, that always happens. But it seems that you know they were they were allowed to continue development until the game was done. And that's a rare thing. Um, usually we are constrained by time and, and money and we we have to finish it even though it isn't finished. Things are cut, uh, corners are cut, compromises are made. Um, but I think, it at least from the outside, it looks like they were able to do everything they wanted to driven from a creative point of view. So of course they made cuts, but it felt the cuts were made as creative choices rather than because of time constraints or budget constraints. I mean, there were a sm- small team, and and in the grand scope of things, this was not an expensive game for Sony, uh, which probably makes it a lot easier for them to support the team. But I think that's to their credits, and it's also to the credit of that game company that they were able to to push for it. Because as developers, sometimes you 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 don't want to piss people off. You want to deliver. You want to sort of keep your promises. Um, and having to tell somebody, look, we need more time, um, is hard. Um, but I feel Journey couldn't have existed without being a first-party game. Not in the, not in the form it it eventually took. Not at that time. I mean, 2012 was not a time when, in this yet had their uh, the power that they've had in in more recent years. Um, I think still the idea of an independent console game was kind of fresh and new. And it was like when Journey came out, and again, it's hard to time travel, but I think it felt different, not because of the quality of the game, but because of what it was. Here was like a small, weird, different game that did something completely new, and it came from Sony, and it was on the PlayStation 3. It didn't, it it was, it, that was part of it too. It It felt very special. And different. You mentioned that sort of two-thirds aspect of it um, in terms of, you know, what, what defines the game. And we talked about sort of Matt Navis sort of art design as art direction on the game. But obviously the other big aspect of it, as you alluded to, is Austin Wintory's soundtrack. 
Fucking hell if I have not heard something so special in terms of a soundtrack, in terms of, you know, just incredible. There have been, obviously, if, at least speaking for me anyway, like in terms of my own favourite games, there have been scores that have come out since that have made me, you know, immensely feel things. Like, to give you a few examples, Last Guardian, Near Automata, um, Gris, um from Nomada, um, like, like, a lot of these are just some special soundtracks that have come out since Journey's release, but, like, I don't think I'll have ever have heard something so riveting, beautiful, compelling, that is also, as well, tied heavily into that gameplay experience that yeah, you and I think that's, in Journey as well. Yeah, that latter is, is the most important. There are so many, there are a lot of good composers working with games and there are a lot of games with good scores or great scores even but sometimes you feel like they are separated right i mean a composer usually comes on towards the end and they are not part of the team they are hired to do a job and they do it in a few months uh sometimes if it's a bigger game longer but oftentimes very quickly um and they do the best they can because i mean that's the job in a way um but I think with Journey, it's very clear that um, that Austin Wintery was sort of part of the team, that he worked closely with the designers, with the art direction, uh, and that choices were made to support the score rather than just have it as background, which is often what happens. And I'm, I'm biased here because, I mean, we have a composer on the team, uh, Simon Poole, our composer, who is fantastic and has done some of my favorite game scores, including uh, Draugen, which he's won multiple awards for. Definitely worth listening to if you haven't. Uh, but, And I know sort of the importance of that. Um, in our case, you know, Simon is part of the team. He's there every step of the way. He's part of the design decisions. And that makes the music an integral part of the game and game design. And I think that's so evident in Journey. And I don't think that's... It's not It's not normal. It's not what most games get to do. And and again, I think like it's it's such a big part of, of that game and how the music is sort of fits like a glove and is part of every part of... Every, every gameplay system, every part of the game. And it's a stirring score. I mean, it's it's the kind of score that you can listen to independently of the game and still really enjoy, right? I mean, I actually tried to go on Spotify just a couple of hours ago to listen to it. Unfortunately, it's it's not there. But I went on YouTube and I just put it on and I, I worked with that as a background. And it works independently of the game. But then when you sit down and play the game and you see where the music kicks in and what it does, that's a whole other level. And I think it's... I think it definitely there's an argument to be said that it's the best uh, use of a game score in any game ever. Uh, at least it's it's up there. I'm just checking Spotify because I could have sworn that the soundtrack was there at some point. It's not. It was at some point, but it was been removed. And you know, to be fair, that's probably not Spotify Spotify's fault. That's probably the uh, the rights holders pulling it. But that's a shame because it you just end up going on YouTube instead, and then nobody gets paid. That's a goddamn shame. I, uh... At least in terms of ease of convenience, that's a shame. Hmm. But like they touch upon your point, um, in terms of embedding, you know, composers or uh, like as part of the team and all that. There, um, I I spoke to I've spoken to Robin Honecky a few times about Journey. Actually, um, she actually has her own episode here of my favorite game. But also, hmm. I interviewed her for 
a big piece on on Journey just to celebrate that game's sort of anniversary at the time, or at least long past anyway. And um, I think she said something along. She made she mentioned a remark at that time that sort of alluded bringing Austin in as part of embedded as part of the dev team from near enough the outset. Hmm, um, and I think that sort of goes back to sort of what you said there now about you know having the music from the outset like as part of the sort of gameplay experience yeah absolutely and and you can you can you can tell the difference i mean to be fair this is not something that most indies are able to do uh for cost reasons for practical reasons and in AAA games there's so many stakeholders that the idea of bringing a composer in as part of the team from the get-go that's probably not doable uh and that's an advantage smaller games have i think we did the same with with uh both Dreamfall chapters and especially Draugen, where the music was part of the game from day one and we shaped the game to to work with the music. And that's something we're doing with Dustborne as well. So I I can totally see why they did that. They just, you know, they everything sort of came together so well there. That's it's a rare thing and that's that's to their credit. Um so to probably delve into that sort of gameplay aspect of Journey, like um like or at least in terms of, you know, the places you go to explore, like, at least from what I remember from that sort of, you know, um, marketing aspect of the game, because I remember when I first seen it in 2010 at Gamescom, it was, like, it led very early on with that sort of desert, like, sort of environment, like, for those first, for the lack of a better term, because you don't really want—I don't know if you really want to call them chapters or levels—but that's what it is. Just basically for those first, you know, few chapters, like it is just that desert aspect. And you know, I would have been fine if that was the case, because obviously, again, you know, the starter is such—you um, know—it it pops out immediately. And again, I wouldn't have mind if that was just the entire game. But then you go to explore, you know, these sort of massive sand dunes, and then you know, exploring these ruins, and all of us, oh, I just had a massive sort of a chill down my spine just thinking about the sort of, uh, for the lack of a better term, just sliding down the sand, mm. sort of sandboarding and all that there, and just thinking about that, and just thinking, oh, it's such a special moment. Can we, can we just talk about that moment very quickly? Because, like, it's just <laughs> I, such I a just re-experienced moment. it. I, like I said, I, I sat down just before this call um, to to sort of refresh my memory and and yeah i mean that gave me so much immediate joy and it's almost like nintendo like in that way right like where the, just the, yeah the act of moving in the world is joyful and so many games fail at that and and i speak for my own games as well where there's not enough consideration to that like movement is just something you do between the other bits but in journey um like in most nintendo games moving is the journey, so to speak, moving is 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 gameplay itself. It's it's that joy of of sliding, of slipping, and 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 it's baked into the gameplay experience where you struggle to walk up a sand dune, but then you get to the top and you you slide down the other side, and especially when you have somebody next to you, that becomes a a joyful uh, celebratory feeling. Like absolutely. Um. So yeah, I mean, like just to, just to touch back on the sort of environment aspect, like it's. It's like looking back now, like I remember being somewhat very surprised at how varied it was when when I was playing it for the first 
time or even just the first few times because obviously like i said there's this assumption that you're just going through the entire desert or the desert for the entire game and and like i said that w- i would have been very fine with that but at the mm. same time like then you have like those sand dunes then you're exploring these sort of um ruins and then obviously the mountain itself and like i, I, I want to touch upon the mountain in mm. a specific detail in a moment but like it's very it's varied in a way that you're sort of exploring environments that are like just feel um not pivotal but like feel yeah feel pivotal to that sort of moment-to-moment gameplay of journey yeah the and the environments are amazing and what's really amazing i when i play games i i'm a game developer i'm a designer but i don't you're a game developer (laughs) when when i play and it's so easy i think to think that for to fall into the trap of analyzing everything you're playing and and secondly i think people on from the outside people think that you know when game developers play games, they probably just look at it clinically or or sort of uh, analytically, and that's not the case for me. Like most of the time, when I play games, I'm just immersed and I'm enjoying myself. But 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 I sort of thought about Journey from that perspective, and 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 I think it's easy to miss how well designed the locations in the world is in Journey. And how that sort of it, the game constantly pushes you forward, even though you feel you're in this this open landscape, this desert, and you could go anywhere. It feels like, even if that's not the case, the game immediately tells you where to go, and it doesn't do it with a minimap or mission markers, which are terrible. I mean, those are crutches that so many games do because they have to, because people get confused and they have no idea where to go. Journey doesn't need those. Journey. shows some landmarks it shows the mountain the mountain is like the best mission indicator in the world who needs a minimap when you know you're going to that mountain and how do you know it it's there right we're we're sort of it is the yeah it is the literal waypoint exactly and you pull towards it and you feel the gravity and i and i just sat down and played it and i with that in mind and i thought hmm let me think about this from a playing game for the first time perspective and there's no there's no choice like the the moment you start playing the game there's that first sand dune with some of these uh, pillars on top of it and the moment you get there you see the mountain and of course the game does tell you that the mountain is important it shows sort of a brief cinematic and there's a score that swells but it doesn't even need that you already have this defining structure and it's gravity right you pull towards that and and like you said, the the map evolves and you dip in and out of ruins and you go underground and but then you reemerge and and you're never lost, you're never confused. I think the the only time I ever was, I I don't think the word is is lost, but when I felt I wasn't completely sure where I was, was when you're sort of ascending this structure. Um, I think about two thirds of the way through the game, and you're sort of trying to I rise think, up again I think from. I know the section you're on about, yeah. I think yeah, I exactly, and and that's when you sort of you you you've been underground for a while, and you're just sort of you're longing for 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 light again. You're longing for the sight of the mountain, and then when you emerge, it feels like a, a, a real accomplishment. But the game never needs to tell you, "Hey, go to the mountain," or "Hey, sort of reach the end of this level." It doesn't need to. It's it is so clear at all times, and that is incredibly difficult. It is, it's, it, you know, there's a reason why most games have a minimap. They just weren't able to tell people where to go through 
through environments and through through the art. Uh, but Journey does that. You never need a UI. You just know exactly where to go. Um, and like, like just to touch upon that sort of waypoint aspect of it. Um, like Journey is a very clean looking game as well. Like not in mm. terms of the art design and all that there, but I mean more in the UI. There's nothing there. Like there's literally nothing there. Like there's nothing to sort of literally the only prompt you're given in terms of a UI user experience is just press X or press start to play at the start of the game. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like that's it's it. very clean. And they show you the controller at certain points. They don't tell you like Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They don't tell you what it does. They just they show a little image of a controller and then that only happens twice or three times I think I think at the beginning of the game. I mean the it's and I think this also speaks to Sony's involvement. This is they're breaking the rules. You are supposed to have <laughs> um, a, a sort of there's there's a way to start up games, and they and they sort of disregard that, and that's fantastic. I love that, and uh, I I found myself I, I wanted to invert uh, the the y axis because you know um I play properly and I have to invert the y axis um and I I actually couldn't figure out how to do that. It took me a little while. I have to press the 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 touchpad. Um, in order to, to make that happen. So it, it goes to, to even that extreme. It tells you nothing. But I love that. I, I think games should always strive to remove user interface. Um, and I think game developers and game designers are often cautious about that because we don't want any roadblocks preventing the player from enjoying the game. And and I think sometimes you, you're stuck with having to give constant instructions because the game is so complex. But Journey is all about pairing things back right it's about removing things in the art in the narrative and and in the user interface and the controls it's it's so obvious that sort of they've 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 just carefully pruned this until only the essence is left and and they trust the players they trust that players are able to to understand how to play the game from those simple instructions and you know, they were proven right. People are able to to get into it, to enjoy it without being force-fed tutorials about how to move or how to jump or how to to chirp or or do anything. It's just it's allowing players to experiment and, and figure it out on their own and then they own it. It is so much more impactful, I think, when players are allowed to do that. One of my favorite aspects of a journey that I've actually written about before is the multiplayer well, I say multiplayer in the mm. sort of loosest sense because it's not multiplayer in a traditional sense. Like, it's very... It is just you and someone else. But the beautiful part is you don't know who that person is. You mm. won't know who that person is until the end of the game when you see their name in the credits. And for me at the time, who is very... And still is very online multiplayer adverse. Like, I won't play... Or at the very least, I will very rarely play multiplayer games... Um, in public servers or you know whatnot, I will only play for the most part always with friends. The only exception to that being probably Splatoon because <laughs> one, you don't have to deal with you know sort of toxic voice chat. Two, you don't have to worry about toxic you know text chat. And three, it is Splatoon. It's just stupidly fun, a lot more fun with multiplayer than uh, single player stuff. Although I've not played the single stuff yet, uh, single player stuff for Splatoon two yet. But I digress. The point I'm trying to sort of make is that with Journey's multiplayer, 
it felt very it it did feel like a, a breath of fresh air because obviously you weren't dealing with the sort of toxic aspects of what you would expect within multiplayer within a game anyway like it it just felt like for the sake of um again a better for the lack of a better description like it just felt very wholesome very helpful and very powerful in a way yeah and this is extremely important i think the the funny thing is that uh, playing it just now there was nobody else around and journey works um without other people mm. uh but i think people who, who sort of play it for the first time now they are losing out on something that really defined the game so I often talk about journey when I talk to people who don't know about games, when I talk about narratives and games and I talk about um, what games are. Uh, because first off, it is a very personal thing to me, um, how sort of journey affects me as a player. And secondly, it's sort of, I think it speaks to the diversity of, of, of games that we can have a game like this and a story told in this way. But I remember very clearly, I think this probably was the first time I played the game, uh, played Journey, and I played Journey a bunch of different times. Um, but I, I remember joining forces with somebody quite early on and, and, you know, chirping at each other and moving together and sort of guiding each other onwards. And then there was a moment where we were sliding down or surfing down this, this tunnel with these mm. sort of windows looking out at the landscape and the sun was setting. Yeah. And I started to cry because it's like there was a moment there where the feeling of companionship and togetherness of sharing something that was so strikingly beautiful, it made me tear up. And like I felt so powerfully connected to somebody who could be anybody anywhere in the world and and the fact that we couldn't talk and the fact that i didn't know who this was i think that made these feelings stronger it made me feel like it's possible to connect with somebody who's sitting on a playstation 3 somewhere in the world this could be a a 10 year old this could be an 80 year old this could be a japanese person they could be american they could be somewhere in africa and i have no idea but we are connected. We are sharing this, this incredible moment together. And I, I, I can't remember being that sort of emotionally affected in any sort of media experience or story experience ever. And, and moving through the game with this person um, just made the experience so much stronger than it would have been going on my own. And I distinctly remember... Um, in the same section of the game where you are sort of ascending again to the ground and you're sort of trying to find a way up of losing that person and the feeling of, of immediate panic and, and almost desperation of not being able to, to continue my journey with them. That also made me sort of, uh, you know, uh, it affected me so strongly. And those two moments have stuck with me, the sort of feeling of, of connection and togetherness and that feeling of loss when my companion disappeared. And then, like you said, you get to the end of the game and you see a scrolling list of, of the people you, you met in the game. But you don't know, you don't actually know which of those was the person you spent those precious moments with. Or even if there was a single person, it could have been like a combination of people. But in my head, it was 
a person. And in my head, it feels almost it's okay to not know who that was or where they're from, or you know, you, or or to contact that person and say, "Hey, want to be want to be PlayStation friends?" It that that's would that would be detrimental to, to the sort of the feeling you're left with of of this this sort of connection across ac- across the world and through sort of this this artistic experience it's immensely powerful and i've talked to people who came to journey late and they sort of you know i i've talked it up and said you know you should play this game so it's it's my favorite game and they played it and they go like yeah it's it's okay and i asked well did you did you meet somebody else like no it's just me and like it's it's clear that if you weren't there if you didn't have the chance to experience the game that way maybe journey can't have be as significant as it was to me and and millions of other people and just another aspect of the multiplayer that feels like it worked very well was that sort of name and communication aspect of the game because again in, in terms of the communication aspect you don't have a mic you can't use a mic in journey hmm. like all the only way you can communicate is that chirp that sort of yeah that sort of chirp um and even then like if you tap it like you give it this sort of bloop, and then um, hmm. if you just sort of press it goes like a uh, sort of a long a uh, sort of higher voiced chirp but then if you hold it down it's a sort of uh like a scream of sorts like a sort of or something like that. I'm just mm. sort of I'm just sort of making my own noises at this point. For any sound directors or sound designers who want to use those voices, <laughs> feel free to you know um, email me for my services. Uh, um, but in all seriousness, um, like what I felt was very fascinating in terms of you know that sort of communication system was the fact that it was very open to interpretation. Mm. Like in terms of context, like it could mean anything. Like it could mean follow me let's go this way such and such and such like it felt very yeah again it was very unique yeah and and number one i think it speaks to human nature in a way that very few experiences do is that interpretation right that person's very simple body language you don't have a lot of things you can do you can run in circles you can run in direction you can you know, you can bump. You can't even bump into people because there's no collision between players. But that combination of just having that single button that makes a series of different chirps in tune with the with the music, uh, and um, and basically your your emotions, and and then to basically create a language on the fly together with this other person, um, that's amazing. And it's it's it sort of transcends geography and 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 cultural background and language and and you make yourself understood in a way that is so human and yet is unique to this medium because you know in the real world we have lots of other avenues for communication uh but i think journey would have failed if it had traditional communication i mean i dislike multiplayer gaming for the most part even though i worked on mmos so i should probably not say that but i i avoid multiplayer games for the most part because i don't want to be yelled at by 14 year old american teenagers um i don't want the pressure a lot of the time i play games to have fun i don't want to feel like competition or to be you know to have demands on me um and you know i'm an introvert i don't i don't necessarily always want to play together with people i like having these solo experiences but i do like 
the fact that I can have a solo experience in a world where there are others and where I can, you know, in some way touch other people's lives and they can touch me. And I think the simplicity of the communication in journey is the key to its success, at least on that part, on that front. I think if you had text communication or voice communication or an advanced sort of glyph system that could be used to 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 string together sentences, it wouldn't be journey. It wouldn't be this deeply emotional, deeply personal experience that you can interpret in any way you want. I mean, the narrative in journey is up to interpretation, but the communication between players is also up to interpretation. And I think that means that players are kinder to each other. It's a game that invites kindness. It invites uh, acts of generosity because even people who are sort of drawn to griefing or drawn to destruction, they don't have the tools to do that. And you know what happens? People are nice. Maybe this is something uh, Facebook and Twitter could learn from as well, but take away the tools to be an asshole and, and people gravitate towards helpfulness and kindness i think hmm, that's a very interesting way to sort of look at that hmm. that's something that's something for me to ponder on hmm. um probably pro- and like you say probably for the social platforms they sort of ponder on as well hmm. um the other thing that um i, I want to uh sort of tie that to sort of one of the main big aspects of journey um that sort of communication and playing with that second player um probably one of my favorite moments ever in a game that i'll ever explore or not explore sorry uh, experience is going through the mountain at the very end of the game Hmm. like going through that and sort of um having that having that experience that very like last ditch sort of reached towards the you know the peak of the mountain and going from there like it's very obviously it's very dire and stuff like that there but then it obviously picks itself back up again it gives you hope and then mm. you're flying through all these sort of um you know mountain tops and stuff like that there and all these other you know um i want to say players for the lack of a better term there there like um or just sort of other other um i don't want to say creatures because they're not really creatures. I don't know what to really call them. Spirits, souls. Spirits. Okay, yeah, spirits, souls. That, that's a, actually hmm. that's a, the greatest way to describe that because that sort of brings me to my point. Hmm. Um, when you reach the when I reach the mountaintop, like as it is playing it for the first time, it really destroyed me in a good way hmm. in, in terms of emotionally. Like it really destroyed me. It's like I was. I remember like, you know like shedding one or two tears like going through that light but then i mean i remember playing a, a lot um towards the end of 2013 when i was sort of going through my games of the generation at that time because we were just coming into the playstation 4 and xbox one and i was because uh, because of the short length of journey you're only playing it for like nine minutes two hours tops hmm. um i figured i would only play it for you know two or three times just to sort of you know um sort of ground my feelings for it and like sort of set a foundation but the first time i played it just just so i could sort of understand where it was in terms of you know my game of the generation list at that time i only needed to play it once and the reason for that is because i finally found someone 
to come through with me to the mountains to the end of the games as you're floating up through the mountains with those spirits watching you fly up and all that there. And then it's and then I the both of us like just walking into the light hmm. at the end. Ragnar, I, I, I actually lost it. I actually full-on cried. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd ever gone through the end of the game, through the light, with someone else. And I, cr- and I, and I remember like just sort of feeling like very emotional, very, crying, not necessarily a lot, but just crying. That was very powerful. That felt very special to me. It felt very, like, not... Not necessarily connected, but like it felt very again, it just felt very special and very unique to me in a way. Like that moment in the entire game just sort of in the entire game just sort of sums up the whole experience of journey. That journey of discovery and but the fact that you're doing it with someone else at the very end just sort of sums it up. Yeah. And it's I first off, yeah, absolutely I, I when I had that experience the first time and probably also the second time I, I there were tears as well uh, because it is powerful and I think that I mean journey is what you put into it I feel I think the people who don't get journey or don't enjoy it or don't find meaning and emotion there they're not they're not putting that meaning and emotion into the game and I think I definitely did and I do when I play the game um, and it's the kind of game that rewards your own personal investment and emotional investment in it. Um, I think it can, I think it's more powerful when you share that experience with a stranger and you sort of, like you said, take that final step into the light with them and you have that joyful leap from, you know, when you're climbing up the mountain and you, through the snowstorm and at least in my head, you you die and then you reborn as as a as a spirit, a soul, and you rise and you rise and you rise, and you have that sort of joyful symphony of all these souls joining together towards the peak of the mountain, and then that sort of that final step into being, I don't know, reborn or or going back to the beginning. It's it devastated me too, and it it's 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 probably what cemented the game as as my favorite game of all time. Um, but I also feel like it's it's exactly the kind of experience where you have to bring something to the table. I think the game is giving you a lot, but if you're not giving back in a way, if you're not investing in what you're seeing and experiencing and letting that be transcend just the mechanic of, of responding to what's happening on the screen, I don't think you're going to get the experience that the two of us had. And I think it's a game that then demands that from players. It demands sort of empathy and it 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 demands sort of um letting the game trigger feelings in you. Uh I don't think the developers necessarily uh are forcing you to feel anything, but it's allowing you to feel stuff. And that's important. They're not telling you to feel any specific things, but the game triggers those feelings in a lot of us just to go back on um that 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 that, that last thing and you mentioned the sort of interpretation of it because like that was something that i remember having a conversation on with a fellow critic of the game or well someone who was also sort of you know writing about the game at that time and like 
for me, like that, I think, I think if I remember correctly, that person was sort of seen as the interpretation of death, in that, you know, you're going for the light, and you're basically, for the lack of a better description, you're basically going into heaven. Whereas for me, I, I more or less see it as the interpretation of birth, like you're being reborn, um, like, and I think you said there now, like you saw it sort of as a sort of moment of rebirth if i uh, if i remember correctly right correct and i think i mean i think this this speaks to the game being very spiritual um you you could maybe call it religious but but that's such I a would probably lean, lean that way yeah but i think it can be read that way by people but i think it's definitely spiritual and i think it's a game that it's about the journey of life and and at least that's what it meant to me um and it is a game that is about death and rebirth uh, again in my head, and I think that's also why it's powerful, uh, at least for me. Uh, you know, I I do spend like like a lot of us time thinking of 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 death and and sort of the end of the journey and and the hopefulness of journey. Uh, the game um, makes it it more impactful. We have the moment of of desperation of of fighting against this impossible wind of of being sort of pushed back from from the final step of the journey upwards and and the cold closing in and and as I see it, the body dying and then the spirit being released and reborn and then going through a a rebirth into a new person at the end or 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 another chance at the journey. I I I I try not to sort of overanalyze it. To me, it's not. I'm not trying to find a deeper meaning there uh, because I don't care. I care how it makes me feel and what it means to me personally. And to me, like what what the developers intended, I, I think that's kind of unimportant. And I haven't spoken to the developers but in a way i think they feel the same way that they have their own interpretation but they're in no way trying to force that on the player but i do think that the game is actually and intentionally spiritual i I think it's hard to play this game and not have thoughts about like you said birth rebirth death uh life in some way right because it is it's not in your face but I think there are so many things there that um, are culturally significant in terms of sort of the spirituality of the game and that are human, that are so common to us of, of experiencing sort of, 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 of this journey towards sort of the end. Um, I think it's hard for people not to have at least some spiritual connection with this game. I'm just going through my uh, Google Drive because mention the sort of spiritual aspect the religious aspect of the journey um when i um i wrote for an anniversary of the journey's release a few years ago for eurogamer and there was something that stood out immensely for me in my interviews with genova chen kelly santiago and robin honicky but there was an, an answer that robin honicky gave me in like we did two interviews for that piece that i wrote and it was at the end of that second piece that stood out to me. And I'm just trying to get this, the transcript up of it now. But basically, I think it was something along the line. Uh, we were just basically um, discussing the the sort of spiritual aspect of the journey. And I'm just trying to bring up 
the transcript here like um and and I remember I just asking her like do you believe in reincarnation and I'm just sort of reading for the answer she gives not like I'm literally reading this in real time like and I remember her answer being so profound so in to in ta in, in keeping with what journey is about it's it's about that journey and that interpretation of it in this case just sort of rebirth and, and as robin says reincarnation like it was a very profound moment for me I, it's one of my favorite interviews actually uh, i've ever done and, and especially for and because of that answer she gave hmm yeah and i think this is rare in in game development too right to have to have such um thematic depth and thoughtfulness in what the game is communicating and telling it's rare it's really hard i mean we all strive for it we all strive to have games that have something to say beyond the surface level where the story and the game mechanics work together to give you that experience and and there's only a handful of games that i think have given me that uh i mean another game that comes to mind is brothers and i don't know if you've play that game through to the end but where you feel you're rewarded in a way um, for learning how the game works and for playing the game and you're rewarded thematically and I think that's the case with with Journey as well I think it is obvious that the developers had something in mind uh, but what I do appreciate is that they're not forcing it on us they're not telling us that here is the single interpretation. I think they have their interpretation, but I think it is also very clear to me that they're leaving the door open for multiple interpretations. And you know what? That makes it more personal for people because that means we can put ourselves in it. Mm, absolutely. Um, so in that case then, like, uh, um, let's start to bring this in a little bit. Um, what else do you like about Journey that we've not discussed yet? I think we covered a lot of it i mean i think one thing that is important to me about the game is that it is a game about being alone it's even a game about loneliness sometimes uh but it's a game that sort of allows for that it doesn't make being alone in this world a detriment to the experience it makes that it's still a beautiful experience. And then when you meet other people, you can then choose to sort of walk alongside them and you can choose to leave them. You can choose to stay and and do something else. And the game doesn't punish you for that. It's not like you need two people to, to, to cross a, a barrier or that you need to rely on other people. And I think it's made by people who are comfortable with loneliness and comfortable with the idea of being alone in a, in a game or in in real life and i think that's great i think sometimes games and society in general they sort of point to uh the person alone as being sort of the outsider or or the person who is sort of in some way disadvantaged but journey doesn't say that at all you can play the game on your own and there's there are advantages to playing together, but those are, the advantages are more emotional than they are mechanical. And I really appreciate that. Uh, it's a game for, for introverts in a lot of ways. And it's also a game that is melancholy. 
And melancholy to me is my it's my favorite emotion um, in many ways. And it's a game about sort of the loss of a world, right? You're walking through the ruins of something. And and the story of this world is there. But again, it's a, it's a story that can be interpreted. It's not told to you. You basically have to tell yourself this story. And I remember playing this game with my daughter. And I can't remember how old she was at the time. But she, maybe she was six or seven at this point. And I remember her sort of coming up with her own story based on these images and what was happening. And and as a, as a as a storyteller in games, that's incredible to see how, you know, the games I work on, there's so much dialogue, there's so much storytelling, there's so much of it that's told to you. And while it's difficult to tell a story that way too, it is even more difficult to tell a story without any words or without any clear sort of science where all of it is is sort of embedded in the world and it's it's a story you the player have to tell yourself but that's super powerful because it makes the story yours and i think that's that's often underappreciated mm, it's funny that you mentioned those sort of emotional sort of emotional mechanics um gameplay mechanics like there's doesn't feel like there's many games that do those sorts of things, like those sorts of emotional mechanics that that you mentioned. Besides Journey, hmm. actually, I may, maybe, although it's been a while since I've played it, maybe what remains of Edith Finch as well to an extent. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a it's a much denser game. I mean, in Edith Finch, uses sort of a plethora of mechanics and sort of a constant stream of content to 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 do some of the same things. But it's such a radically different way. But but absolutely, that's also a game that that tells a story in 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 in, in a in a fantastic way. Um, but I think and very the game, melancholy, like you say as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think a game that is is sort of close in some ways to Journey for me is Brothers. And I don't know if you played the game. And if you haven't, I am not going to spoil the ending. And I also don't want to spoil the ending for the people listening to this podcast. But that's a game that has, I, it's pretty clear that I think the people who made Brothers did play Journey. Uh, and not in a way that they sort of stole anything, but, you know, the, the sort of the feeling of this of this journey you're on. And in that game, you know, you're, you're playing two brothers and you're sort of on the journey together. Um, um, but there's some of the same emotions there. It's more of a fairy tale world, but it's still a world that is sort of unexplained to you. But the greatest thing about Brothers is how how these sort of emotional aspects and emotional mechanics come together at the end. And when games do that, and I think there aren't a ton of examples, but when they accomplish that, when the mechanics and the emotions go hand in hand, that is incredibly powerful. And it's rare and it's, and it's so precious when it happens. And I'd love to see more of that. And I'd love to be able to pull something like that off myself. But it's it's hard. I think sometimes it happens through the happy accident of, of being a team that sort of tighten it in terms of narrative, game design, audio, music, art direction. And sometimes it's just brilliant people doing brilliant things, which I think is the case with Journey. Uh, but it's also time. You know, art takes time. Uh, I don't think Journey could have been made in a year by a fresh team. It needed 
the games that they had made before and it needed the time it had to become what it is. This hurts to say because I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, what didn't you like about Journey? Is there anything you don't like about Journey, at least? No. No, I, I think it's many ways a perfect game. Um, and there's yeah, a reason. Well, and, and that... And that... In that case, then, like, let me ask, what what would what would define a perfect game for you in that way? A feeling, the feeling you're left with having played it, whether you play through the whole thing or you play a part of it. I don't like nitpicking stuff. I, I try not to. I try to let myself be pulled into things. I I appreciate when things make me feel a certain way and make me feel good. And when they do, I am very forgiving about a lot of stuff. If if a piece of art or a game or a movie or a book can make me feel something, not necessarily something new, just feel something important, and it and I, and and I and I think about it afterwards, um, then I'm very forgiving, and I try not to nitpick or find flaws in it. And while I'm sure Journey has flaws, um, like I said, when I sat down and played it earlier today, I couldn't figure out how to invert the y-axis immediately. Is that a flaw? No. I mean, is it important? No. Um, and and again, like it's so easy for 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 us, for you know, game developers, for players, for game critics to to nitpick because we all do that, and it sometimes is part of our job to nitpick as well. I mean, the games I work on myself, I have to nitpick, but it's so nice to be able to just sit down and play something where that makes you feel something, and then just immerses you and it takes you on a journey through a narrative through a world through through game mechanics and then just you can just let it be you don't have to find anything wrong with it and yeah to me then journey is a perfect game i played it many times which i never do and at no point have i felt frustrated with it or no point has the experience been lessened it's still sort of a complete experience and it still is as good a game as it ever was. Um, this actually probably hurts a lot more than my last question, but is there anything you would change from a design perspective? Is, like, is there anything from that you would sort of look at and change and go, yeah. When you look at a piece of art, do you feel like, oh, I wish I could change this bit of it? I don't know. I, I don't think most people do. Um, I don't, I don't think I could have made Journey. It's a game that, it doesn't make me feel envious or jealous of like their talents. It's just a game that goes like, yeah, this is the creation of somebody from a different background, different perspective than I have. This is something I could have never made. I would never have tried to change that. And that's not the case with everything. There are games when I go like, oh, I wish they didn't do that or... Or TV shows or movies where I feel like, oh man, if they'd only done this. But but Journey is like on a list of games where I feel like, no, I couldn't have done this. There's no way I could have improved this. There's no way I could have told them how to improve this. It is its own thing. And it is it is a piece of art that is made by a group of people as as a complete experience. And it, it, it has... It has their personalities in it it has their sort of craft in it and i don't think anybody else could have made that game better it is very personal it is a piece of art just to sort of round off on journey then um 
I want to touch way back on something that we sort of, that you sort of mentioned in, uh, in passing, in terms of you know journey. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I can't remember the exact way you described it, but like basically, like um, it was here in my notes, but just basically how journey sort of went on to define the indie scene hmm. in terms of what makes an indie game. It really feels like Journey was the game that exploded everything in the sense that, yeah, okay, it feels hypocritical to say this because obviously Journey was published and funded by Sony, yes, very hypocritical, but it also feels, it also has that indie game feel to it, in that it's a very small team of, I think if I remember correctly, it was a team of... 10, 12 people that made Journey. And um, when Journey came out, it came out at a, in a year full of, you know, in a year um, where indie games seemed to explode. Like, obviously, there was Journey, but there was also the first season of Telltale's The Walking Dead. And, uh, and those two games sort of helped headline not only what 2012 was for the games industry, but also, like, sort of made players look beyond, you know, the games coming from, you know, the mega publishers like the platform holders, like Sony or uh, Microsoft or the third parties like EA, Activision, Ubisoft, Take-Two, whatever. It defined the indie scene for me, at at least from my interpretation of it. Like, how do you see um, how Journey has sort of defined, not not even necessarily just the, the indie scene, but... Like even its legacy. What like what do you think is that game's legacy? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's at the forefront of like a wave of indie games, especially on consoles, right? Because indie games did exist before Journey and before Braid on on Xbox 360. Another one of those early indie games that really defined defined the the, the industry. Um, but they were on PC or they were on you know. Maybe on Mac once in a while, but um, the consoles were sort of, they were closed to most indies. Um, consoles were where you had the big games, the proper games, you know, the grown-up games. Um, but I think Journey opened that door. And I think a lot of people looked at Journey and saw that, holy crap, you know, we can, we can make something that is, that is us. Uh, as sort of as profiled as the as the big the quote unquote big games that has the support of the first parties that looks beautiful and looks incredible but also doesn't look like anything else out there doesn't look sort of try to be realistic or anything like that um but it's also a game that's approachable it's not like too artsy or too indie in terms of you know having obscure mechanics or being too experimental it's it's a game that's actually very quote-unquote casual friendly it's a game that anybody can play and i think that's also a a big reason for its success i do think in this in the developers some took the wrong lessons from that game um i think actually journey is a, a commercial title i think it's a game that marries the approachability um of of sort of um 
not casual gaming, but, but approachable games and marries that with interesting themes. Uh, but it's presented in a way that it's, you know, nobody can look at that game and, and not think it's beautiful. It doesn't try to be idiosyncratic in any way. It is just beautiful. And I think some indie developers and some indie games took the wrong inspiration from it. I think, you know, some people look at Journey and say, oh, puzzle platformer, let's do that. You know, it's not that at all. It's it's just, again, it's, it's, it's just a journey. It's not a game that's about the mechanics. Uh, but I think it opened the door. Uh, I think it made Sony realize the the strength and, and importance of small teams doing new things. Um, I think the whole industry took notice. Uh, I don't think everything that sort of came out of Journey uh, from other companies is, you know, uh, necessarily positive. But in general, it sort of, yeah, it, it, it opened people's eyes, I think, in, in, in both the media and amongst players to the potential for indie gaming. And the potential success of indie gaming, how indie games could be huge, how they can find a massive audience as long as they were available and available on platforms that people had in their homes. And it's, and it's interesting that you mentioned how Sony sort of, after Journey's release, uh, it, it, it opened up a lot of eyes and including Sony in terms of small teams. Hmm. And in a way, in a way, it also feels like a shame. It sort of closed down that small indie incubation unit within Sony Santa Monica to help indies and all that there, because like Giant Sparrow was initially part of that crew as well. That you know was incubated within Sony Santa Monica um, and put out the unfinished Swan. And I think when Sony closed down that arm of uh, Sony Santa Monica, it felt like a lot of you know that magic of what made that sort of incubation crew and the indie games that Sony Santa Monica outside of the AAA team within that studio, the God of War team, whatever, like it, it, like they put out a lot of great small titles and when they closed that down, it felt like uh, a small sort of part of uh, that, that uh, Sony died. But on the lob side of it as well, if that hadn't happened we wouldn't have had Annapurna Interactive. Hmm. So in a way, it balances out, maybe? Like, I don't, like, I, I, I don't want to say, you know, um, uh, I don't know what I'm saying at this point, but basically, I think what I'm trying to get at is the, the, the cliche of when one door closes, another one opens, basically. Hmm. Yeah, I think Journey opened a lot of doors. And I think, again, I mean, Sony has done a lot for indie games um oh for sure but but not prior to journey i mean to be honest microsoft with the xbox 360 was the first to open the door for indies on consoles um i mean sony did uh invite indies to the i think the um the psp uh the playstation portable um but you know the the playstation 3 was holy the the big consoles were sort of reserved they didn't want to sort of clutter that with with small and weird games and and I think like it's very true like so, so Sony opened that door and they were unable to to sort of to to grow that but but I also think some opportunities were lost and I think that both Microsoft and Sony uh, have at times succeeded in in encouraging in the development and at other times completely discouraged it. Um, 
And I think that sort of tide goes up and down. I do hope we've landed now on, on a point where people do understand both the creative value and the, um, the, the commercial value of having a lot of indie games on their platform or having sort of a wealth of, of games from, from, from different developers of different genres. Um, um, even Nintendo has, has embraced that and learned that, uh, and yeah, I think journey will be remembered as, as, as one. I mean, it's, it would be completely wrong to call it sort of the, the first big indie games. I mean, that's disregarding decades of work on, on, on platforms like PC and Mac where, Companies have risen and done amazing things, but but you know consoles were were different. They were closed, and I think Journey opened doors. Honorable mentions, go for it. Yeah, so I mean, when when you asked me to, to to be part of this podcast, I actually struggled a bit trying to think of which game to to bring to the table. Journey was the first game I thought about, but I was also sure that somebody else would have talked about it by now. And I then I scrolled to the list of of, of previous podcasts, and uh, and it wasn't there, which was great. But you know, it's I, I don't. I don't always have a single game, so there's a long list of games, and 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 that list is probably way too long for a single podcast. I think we could have probably a series, a seasonal podcast, talking about my long, <laughs> like long I list of earlier, favorite games. Uh, like I said earlier, sort of many series, and even then, that would have been just on journey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'd go for seasons, but but the, but but as part of the process of sort of thinking about like should should I talk about journey or something else, I did come up with a list and. And Uncharted 2 is high up on that list. Uncharted 2 is probably my favorite of games that do more traditional storytelling. I think Uncharted 2 tells a rousing story incredibly well. It is a better Indiana Jones than at least the last Indiana Jones uh, film. It's a game that's incredibly well written, incredibly well directed in terms of the voice acting. Uh, uh, that looks fantastic. It still looks fantastic. I replayed it quite recently, uh, and it's a game that sort of just, yeah, does the you know the traditional storytelling better than pretty much any game has ever done. I do think the game has flaws. I think there's just way too much shooting and way too much carnage to really sort of uh, thematically work. Uh, but when Uncharted is two is good, it is better than most other games. Um, we talked about Day of the Tentacle briefly earlier. I think that's to me the quintessential LucasArts adventure game, where the game design, the puzzle design, is so brilliant with uh, the three time periods and how that sort of integrates. And that's a marvel of of mechanical design. And it's also very very funny. I think it is funnier than the Monkey Island games. I think the characters are fantastic. It has a pretty, you know, 
for its time a, a cast that was you know different um and that felt unique and it felt slightly more diverse than other games and it's also a game that looks or at least looked beautiful um i haven't revisited day the tentacle um I kind of want to, but I'm also kind of afraid of doing it because it is a game that was very, it meant a lot to me when I first played it. It was also one of my first CD-ROM games. So, you know, having the full voice acting and, uh, and you know, sort of the how, how quickly you could go from scene to scene. It just, it was kind of revolutionary in that sense. Um, Portal 2 is on my list. I think in terms of, of, mechanical puzzle design i mean that's i'm not a huge puzzle fan i don't i usually find myself you know i'm not smart enough to to solve puzzles and and it can get frustrating but portal 2 it's just when you get stuck you want to keep trying and then when you solve it which you always do it you you feel so good about it and of course, Portal Two is a marvel of storytelling, of of, of characterization. Uh, it's such a beautiful game, and I don't know why they haven't made Portal Three. I guess that goes uh, for a lot of potential sequels from from Valve. Um, do, but do, yeah, do you want to know a secret? Do you want to know a secret? It's because they can't count to three. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I, I I think it's 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 almost true because they've had such such success counting one two that that it's like almost like a steep drop off where like they're daunted by by the number, and I think topping Portal Two is hard. It is a it is a fantastic game and one I would like to revisit soon. Um, Halo is on my list. I do like first person shooters. Halo I think was something brand new when it came. Um, the open, the feeling of this open world, uh, a really dense story. Uh, a sort of it. It felt like that game had a world and a history. Uh, I've lost track along the way. I mean, I played most of the Halo games. I haven't played the last one. Um, but hey, the first Halo, married to sort of the 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 original Xbox and how that was sort of technologically ahead of other consoles at the time made that into a pretty incredible experience um witcher 3 is up there um i don't know quite why the witcher 3 has so many flaws but it is also a game that has humanity it has some amazing characters and stories in it that are unexpected and really well told I'm not a huge fan of The Witcher himself, but some of the characters around him uh, are characters that stayed with me. And it's also a world that feels sort of raw and beautiful and interesting compared to sort of many of the more polished fantasy worlds. It feels real. And that's something I really appreciate. Um, Eternal Darkness. It, it, I was just going to say, um, I was just going to say as well, um, uh, for anyone listening, uh, it's worth noting that we are actually recording this the day Cyberpunk 2077 comes out as well. Mm. So that's that's that just feels very interesting to note. Sorry, you mentioned Eternal Darkness. Yeah, no, and actually, to 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 to, I mean, I I'm excited for Cyberpunk, but I'm also gonna give it time, and I'm kind of worried about it. So I, <laughs> I'm sort of digesting what people are saying about it now. But I I, I definitely 
going to visit that game. Yeah, so Eternal Darkness is a game that a lot of, pe- a lot of people don't know about. It's a GameCube game published by Nintendo, uh, which is odd because it is a sort of a Cthulhu mythos game that really screws with um, the player's perception. It's a game that sort of seems to take control of your console and uh, your TV and do weird things as sort of sanity effects. And that game has stuck with me a lot. Uh, especially uh, at a uh, at a time where sort of the user interfaces of TVs all look the same, so that game sort of emulated the look of a a volume button and turned on the volume on your TV. And I thought sort of that was actually happening, but it was the game sort of just messing with you. Um, so that's a really interesting and and I think a really cool game. Um, I mentioned Brothers already. Um, a fantastic game. I don't think I need to say more about that, but it's it's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Fable Two, that's probably a controversial oh, yes. one. Not, um, not controversial in my eyes. That's the fucking best Fable game. That's, it is that's the best Fable game. It is. Yeah, and and I'm a fan of the Fable games. I mean, I I Peter Molyneux promises a lot, but I felt that with Fable Two, he delivered on a lot of the promises. I the the dog the dog in that game i think works beautifully it's the first time i've had a pet in a game that i felt actually close to and how that dog sort of seeks you out when it's been hurt and sort of crawls after you for miles to get you amazing and i and i love the humor in that game i think like to sort of have the the black adderish monty pythonish uh humor mixed into this sort of traditional fantasy setting or very sort of british fantasy setting i think it it works really well. It's underappreciated, I think. Um, I agree. Absolutely. Doom, the original Doom, was a game that made me feel something completely new at that time. The feeling of dread and menace and 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 danger and sort of the the art style and the sounds that are sort of still you know part of my psyche. I think I can still hear the doors opening in Doom. Uh, fantastic game. Um, Colin McRae Rally. I'm a sucker for driving games and racing games, and I think that's also up there. I don't think I've ever would have chosen it as my favorite game, but I have such great memories of 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 racing against my ghost in that game. And yeah, I could talk for a long time about that. And then finally, you know, I am a fan of the of the Grand Theft Auto games, sim- mostly because of the worlds. I am never really a huge fan of the stories. But I love the scope of the worlds. And I think trying to sort of think of the one that has stuck the most with me, I think it's actually San Andreas. Again, one of the underappreciated ones. People mention, you know, Vice City or GTA, um, you know, the original GTA 3. But San Andreas was sort of so ambitious at the time. All of California. It was so broken in some ways. And it's such a janky game uh, if you look at it now. But at the time... When I've played that game, the sense of freedom and scope and the world and, and, and a place where I could just go out and do whatever I wanted. Um, that was amazing. So yeah, those were honorable mentions and that list could probably have been twice as long if I'd had more prep time. You mentioned Grand Theft Auto. Dear Sweet Child, may I interest you in Grand Theft Auto 4? <laughs> I do like that game a lot. Um, I am... Not a fan of the main character in that game. Mm. Um, as much as I was in San Andreas, I think. Um, okay. And also, I think San Andreas had like a scope to it. Like it didn't try. It tried to do multiple cities for the first time in a GTA game. 
And there's something to be said for for that, I think, just the, the, the immense scope of it. Um, I mean, of course, I'm a, a fan of GTA 5 as well, but GTA 4, I think, was the one where I felt like, you know, this character is not somebody I enjoy being with. Um, it felt like this person was 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 just unpleasant in some ways. I think for me, the reason why I, I banged the drum for GTA 4 more than probably any other game with GTA 3 just behind it because of how much GTA 3 changed everything mm. is because I feel like, and I said this before, GTA 4 is such, feels like such a maturation and maturity of Rockstar, mm. especially following Hot Coffee and what happened with that in San Andreas. Mm. And I think a lot of that is down to Nico's story. And I think it's because it, it, it Nico feels such more of a, not necessarily darker character, but feels a lot more. He's 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 seen stuff. He's gone through stuff a lot more than you would say, likes of you know, CJ or Tommy Forsetti or mm. you know any of the characters in GTA Five, like um like Franklin or Trevor um or Michael or stuff, or something like that. There, I think that's sort of why GTA Four sticks out for me. But it's really interesting to see or to hear even um you say, uh, yeah, you couldn't really connect with Nico. Yeah, and I think like you're absolutely right And Nico was an attempt to do a character that was had a lot more depth, depth to him and, and much more of, a, of an arc to him. You know what really bothered me, though? It's because here is a guy who is supposed to struggle with his past and the things he has done and being a murderer and, and actually having a sort of a a change of heart or or who's actually bothered by it but then you're playing in a game where violence is the point and i just couldn't get over that disconnect and in some ways even though i don't like trevor in gta 5 i think he's an awful awful person he is the perfect gta protagonist he is a man who takes immense joy in destruction and violence and death right and while I don't think the GTA games are about causing death and destruction, you do it accidentally, right? Like it's hard to drive through that world without killing people or go through a mission without like murdering 50 people. And in a way, Trevor is the character where you feel there's no disconnect between the narrative and what you're doing. But with Nico, I felt the greatest disconnect because I felt I totally agree with you. He was a character that was interesting. Uh, in terms of what he was and where he'd been and where he wanted to go. But then you had the whole thing where he just kept killing people and he kept running over people and he kept doing terrible things. And it was hard to sort of sympathize and empathize with with his stated desires and the game mechanics of what you were doing. No, fair enough. I, I understand that. Um, so... Uh... Top three games ever. How would you rank them? Obviously, Journey at the top, but mm-hmm. what would you fill two and three with? Uncharted 2. Um, and the third one is much harder. I think it's between Day of the Tentacle and Portal 2. It's it's hard. I think like Portal 2 holds up better. I think if I was to sit down and play today, I would probably rank Portal 2 higher. But I think Day of the Tentacle is a game that's probably belongs in the third slot because of how it sort of inspired me and it led to where I am today. So let's let's hammer the list down to Journey, Uncharted 2 and, and Day of the Tentacle.
Let's talk for a few minutes then about Dustborn then. Um, so you announced that you uh, are publishing the game with Quantic Dream. Um, I sort of want to get an idea of um, how that came about because obviously we know Quantic Dream from you know their games, their own games like Heavy Rain, Detroit, um, Fahrenheit, or Indigo Prophecy. If you're American, um, like. How did that come about? Like, like what what sort of made you uh, want to sign with them, basically? So we've been working on Dustborn for quite a while now. The game has been sort of in pre-production since August of last year. But the concept development of Dustborn began much further back in, in 2016, actually, which was a year of, I think, defining political change for a lot of us. And... A year that made me feel like, what the hell am I doing making games? I mean, this is not helping the world. And we felt that if we're going to make more games, they had to be more meaningful. They had to be games that could speak to what what was happening in our feelings and emotions about, you know, those those major changes in both America, the UK and in Europe in general. Um, but, and, you know, the intent back then was that we were going to develop the game um take it as far as, as possible, maybe take it all the way to the end and publish it ourselves as we have done before. Um, and be, you know, in creative control, because that's incredibly important to us, and especially with Dustborn, which is a game that in some ways is can be controversial. It's a game about themes that, you know, touch on real-world events, even though it's set in an alternate future America Uh run by a fascist police force and a sort of a dictatorship or a president for life. Um, it, it's still a game that is going to, it's going to cause uh, controversy. Uh, and we're probably you know, going to hear from people who are not happy with, <laughs> with our point of view or with a Norwe- Norwegian developer's um, portrayal of America. Um, so it was super important to us to, you know, either make the game completely on our own or to to find somebody who understood and bought into what we wanted to do with the game and you know i don't think any of us ever felt that we could we could go to a big publisher and and to have them alongside this without making changes to the game understandably enough um not everybody is interested in in courting controversy or to talk about these themes or to portray America in this way um, so we also knew that while we could bring the game to to the market ourselves we would have to make compromises we don't have a lot of money we fund our games entirely through sort of <laughs> the the sales of our existing games or our current games and through various grants and other funding sources um, so to make Dustborn into what we really wanted with it, we, we needed somebody to 
to help us to to, to step in and 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 publish the game. Um, and we've been talking with Quantic Dream for a long time, actually. I think you know, close to a year. Um, we've been talking to them before before we ended up uh, signing with them, and we felt that they were the ones who really just supported our vision, who were completely unafraid um, to tackle the themes of the game, to who really appreciated the characters we had, um, and who understood our vision for the game mechanics, which are definitely experimental, a lot of them, uh, especially in terms of what we call weaponized words and, and, and the narrative combat in the game. So I think it was just basically a a realization that you know these guys get what we want to do they support our vision they're not gonna they're not gonna sort of interfere with that in any way they're gonna be a, a partner uh and that's what it is to as a partnership where you know they're co-funding the game and we're still investing in it and um we still have our creative vision that we're gonna carry through but we get to to increase the budget and we get to sort of do everything we want to do with that game and to have somebody who understands narrative games alongside because they do i mean the quantic dream games are incredibly interesting in terms of doing um new stuff and doing strange things with stories um i I, i've always been fascinated with their games going back to the um the first game they did, the name escapes me right now, but the the co- collaboration with David Bowie, Nomad uh, Soul, Nomad Soul, Nomad Soul, exactly. Super interesting when I played that back in the day, and it felt like something completely new. Um, so it it was super exciting for us to find out that you know they were looking to sign games and then to be able to 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 draw on them as well on their experience doing this for a very long time. I think that's going to be exciting. I want to touch upon something that um, you sort of mentioned when we were talking about Journey. It's that um, you said that sort of games were sort of too big and complicated. Um, I want to sort of ask how you sort of align that sort of vision and then um, put it into, you know, the games you do at Red Fred, like Dustborn, and just sort of how you make a game that is very... um, no, I don't know if I do feel free to correct me here, but like more condensed, more av- freely um, available to the player in terms of the time they put in it. Like, yeah, like talk to me about that. Like just sort of how you sort of in- incorporate that vision into your own games. Yeah, so I mean, one of the purposes of Red Thread Games was to be able to continue making single-player games. Uh, Funcom was basically going completely towards multiplayer gaming um and it was not something i wanted to continue doing i'd done it it was fun we did something new with the secret world in terms of the massively multiplayer genre but i wanted to get back to smaller games and 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 shorter games and and more focused experiences and especially single player experiences so dreamful chapters was supposed to be a 10-hour game it turned into a 25 to 30 hour game uh mostly because we felt we had a responsibility to telling this story, uh, partly because the game was delayed and we basically decided to to increase the scope of it to sort of reward our players and, and to, 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 to 
to bring everything to a proper conclusion for that saga. So it grew sort of threefold over the course of that development. But I don't think Dreamfall Chapters is not sort of the kind of game we necessarily wanted to continue making. So then we 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 um we made Draugen. And Draugen is a game that is at most four hours long. And that was our first attempt at really doing something very focused and small in some ways, even though the game is ambitious. I mean, it it's uh, graphically, it looks beautiful. Uh, and there's lots of stuff that we had to do from the ground up, you know, working with Unreal, doing the companion system. Um, all of that was completely new to us. But that felt more like the kind of game we want to make, not in terms of, you know, uh, of being a first-person game or, or, or a game without any action, but just in terms of being a focused experience set in a completely new world with interesting characters that we wanted to explore and not sort of bound or anchored to anything that had existed before. Um, so Dustborn is sort of the next step on that ladder, um, a game that's meant to be around 10 hours long, and I think that's for us the sweet spot. I, I think we all feel that, you know, a three, four hour game um, is interesting, but we want to tell stories that are more like a season of a TV show, uh, dig deeper into lore, dig deeper into character. And 10 hours seems to me sort of the, the sweet spot between something that you can finish very quickly and a game that is you know, sort of a, a long-term commitment. Uh, to me, 10 hours... Yeah, that's the game I can I can finish. Uh, you know, I can't finish Assassin's Creed. I I I play them, but I get like a tenth of the way through them, and I'm like, okay, I don't have time for this anymore. So, Dustborn and the games we intend to make in the future are meant to be more focused. Uh, they're meant to be more standalone. They allow us to explore new worlds and new themes without sort of being um, bound to something that we've done before or to player expectations. Um, and it allows us to experiment with, with new gameplay mechanics because we, we want to tell stories. That's what we want to do with our games. But that doesn't mean we're bound to a single game mechanic or a single genre. So with Dustborn, for example, we're doing action, we're doing combat, but we're doing our own narrative twist on that, uh, which I can't talk about now, but it's something that we're going to be hopefully showing in in the in in the near future where you look at it and you go like yep that's definitely red thread games doing a thing uh uh which is very different from from what other studios would have done uh it's a game about lots of words and we're good at that we're good at like putting lots of words into our games um so yeah, I mean, I, I think we have a sort of very clear idea of what we want to do and how we want to evolve. And that includes, you know, uh, single player games, um, linear games in some way, but with what we call emotional branching, where people have some impact on the story and games that explore storytelling in, in sort of that shape and form as sort of, uh, you know, um, like the 10 hour um uh standalone stories about about interesting characters and interesting worlds and it's funny that you sort of mentioned that sort of seasonal tv show analogy um like the obviously there's you know episodic stuff like um the walking dead or anything telltale put out before it closed but also stuff like life is strange as well that sort of used the episodic model but 
it's interesting that you specifically mentioned the sort of TV show seasonal aspect of it. Because, like, the only other developer that has sort of used that reference is Remedy for the original Alan Wake. And I'm just sort of thinking aloud here, in a way. But, like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is what sort of drives you towards that sort of TV show sort of thinking for Dustborn? Well, it's a great format, isn't it? Like, it's... If I can sit down with a game that I know is not too long, that has a story that sort of takes you on a journey and to a conclusion, and that's divided into segments that allows me to play for 45 minutes, an hour, and at most an hour and a half in an evening, I think that is appealing to grown-ups, to people who don't have a wealth of, of, of free time, who can't necessarily commit to playing a ton or to play a single game for a very long time. I don't want to do that. I, you know, I, I, a lot of people, they, they sort of, they're bound to one game. They're sort of married to a game and they play that game for a month, six months, years sometimes. Um, but to me, there's such a big audience for people like me who are like, you have a job you have a family, you have maybe an hour, maybe two hours, at most three hours in an evening to do something. Uh, you're not just going to play games. You might watch an episode of of of, uh, of Game of Thrones. You, you might, uh, you know, actually spend some time with your family. Um, uh, you might play some Fortnite. And then maybe at the end of the evening, you have 45 minutes. You can sit down and play part of a game on your own by yourself. A game that's not multiplayer, that doesn't require you to sort of team up with anybody or wait for somebody else. And something that allows you to to have that sort of bite-sized entertainment, like a snack gaming. And that to me is the, is the goal. So, you know, with Dustborn, um, we're dividing it into basically into sort of chapters, episode issues, whatever you want to call it. And making sure that those are sized in a way that you can you can play for an hour in an evening and then you know you can save walk away from it and maybe return to the game a week later to do the next bit of the game there's i think there's a massive market for that um games that just are more more like dating than getting married assassin's creed is is a game about not you get married to it right you have to commit to it you have to learn the stuff and then you have to do the stuff repeatedly over a long period of time i think with red thread games you can you can date them. You can you can go on a date in the evening and have fun, and then you can continue with a second date a week later, and that's fine. I guess finally then on Dustborn, um, it's interesting that you mentioned how obviously, um, the the concept of like dates back to twenty sixteen when basically the shit was hitting the fan with Trump being elected, Brexit, and stuff like that. There, um, obviously now four years later, like things are changing like yes brexit is still happening it, it it has happened in a way we're just still in the transition period for another few weeks and you know as we're recording this you know the uk government and the eu are just basically trying to hash out the final you know aspects of a deal between uh both parties in terms of you know the divorce deal and then obviously you know a month ago 
Joe Biden wins um, the election, he'll be the next president. Um, and, you know, bye-bye the turnip, basically. <laughs> uh, I guess how much of sort of... Obviously, there is a lot of political in in, in that game because obviously, like you say, you betray a sort of police state. Uh, very dystopian. You have a president for life. Um, how do you sort of try and convey that now that there is that little bit of hope in the world again? Yes, we're going through a pandemic, obviously, but at the same time, we have a vaccine coming out for the panda uh, for um, COVID. Biden's coming in the office and Brexit is, for better or worse, finally coming to an end. I guess with a game like Dustborn, like considering when the concept was first originated, how do you put that game out there in the world now that there is, you know, we were we were talking about that sort of aspect of, you know, I think hope when we were talking about Journey. Like, how do you sort of put that game out there now? Like, uh, how do you put out Dustborn in a world where it feels like the world is starting to sort of, albeit very, very slowly, start to reset? I think this is the perfect opportunity for that because I think in some ways had Trump been re-elected, had sort of we been facing another four years of the de- destruction of democracy. And it's not saying that it's not still happening. Of course, it is uh, lots of places in the world. But I think it would have been hard to also play a game that reflects that and mirrors that in some way. So number one, I think it is a lot easier to get people to sort of appreciate this kind of fiction when there is hope in the world. Um, I think that often goes for dystopian fiction. It's It's a lot easier to appreciate that when life is pretty good and you can sort of have the uh, the uh, the dark dream of a world that is completely screwed up but but on another level i mean dustborn is about hope it is about the world that has been in the throes of of fascism of 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 uh, corporate domination of of uh, a dictatorship and then our characters are bringing hope into that world it's about sort of taking a stand it's about making the choice to to fight for people rather than to just submit to what's there so i mean in in many ways what what's happening is is exactly the right climate for the game that you know of course that's what we're hoping for on a personal level but also on on a on a purely sort of selfish level of you know where in what world do we want to release this game it's perfect because you know what people are now hopefully more aware that it can happen anywhere that if we don't fight for democracy and we don't fight for diversity, if we don't fight for inclusiveness and if we don't fight for others, then our world might crumble. It doesn't just happen in banana republics. It happens in America. It happens in Britain. It happens in Europe. It can happen anywhere and it can happen quickly. And I think people are aware of that now. And they will be able to understand the game's world better and see that while, of course, we are a comic book reality and there are things in our world that are more fantastical, um, that it still sort of reflects a world that could have been, that could be, and that might be. Um, And that brings it closer to home. I think like Americans, Europeans, 
at least those of us who've grown up in peace, um, we're coddled. We, we, we think like, yeah, shit happens somewhere in, in other countries and on the continents, right? Like, but it doesn't happen to us. Well, I think it's obvious now that it, 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 it can happen to us and it still is happening to us. Fascism is still out there. Authoritarianism is still out there. People are, you know, the rich are still trampling on, on the poor. There is a massive divide. And I think people are primed to fight now. Uh, and, and a game that's about sort of standing up and fighting and about sort of hope in the face of, of darkness. I don't know. I, I, I think people are ready for that. Yeah, I think like if if what I've said about Dustborn and about storytelling in general uh, appeals to you, um, definitely check out Dustborn. You can go to wearedustborn.com or to redthreadgames.com to check out uh, the teaser trailer and to read more about the game. Um, and also, you know, if 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 you want to support our our other games, uh, check us out on Steam or on playstation and xbox as well and we have dreamfall chapters out there and and draugen um and i would really encourage people to to try draugen it's a game that flew under the radar of most people i think but it has it's a beautiful game uh in a in a in a 1920s coastal norwegian setting with uh an amazing uh uh orchestral score by by simon pool uh that's won multiple awards and that really sort of definitely two-thirds of that experience. Uh, as for myself, I mean, probably the best place to connect with me is on Twitter, where I'm at Ragso. Um, I don't tweet enough. I'll try to remedy that. But if, if you want to know what's going on with Red Thread or my thoughts on various things, mostly game-related, that's a good place to, to check me out.
Thanks for listening to My Favourite Game, a podcast by PlayDiaries.com where people in the games industry come on to talk of their favourite game. If you want to listen to future episodes of My Favourite Game or press play, please consider subscribing to our $2 tier on Patreon at patreon.com slash playdiaries. Next week, Charlie Hodson on The Sims. Until next week, bye bye.